Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good morning. My name is Teresa Alvarado, and I'm the Chief of Local Impact at SPUR, the San Francisco Bay Area Planning and Urban Research Association. SPUR is a 110-year-old urban policy organization with offices in San Francisco, San Jose, and Oakland. We promote good planning and good government throughout the Bay Area. I'm also a member of the Silicon Valley Pandemic Recovery Roundtable, which includes 58 cross-sector leaders from Santa Clara and San Mateo County, and I co-chair its Inclusive Recovery Subcommittee. You can find information about this committee at siliconvalleystrong.org slash roundtable. I'm joining you this morning from my home in San Jose, California, the place of origin and still the home of the Muwekma Ohlone people. I'm pleased to welcome you to this virtual Commonwealth Club program and serve as the moderator for today's discussion, produced in association with the Latino Community Foundation. Today, we're focusing on the coronavirus and the Latino community and how the Latino community is responding. And let me take a moment to say our speakers may use the term Latinx, which is a gender neutral or non-binary alternative to Latino or Latina. We all are aware of the severity and tremendous disruption caused by the coronavirus here in California, around the country, and globally. But a less often told story is just how disproportionately Latinos have been impacted by the coronavirus, whether it be in number of cases, number of hospitalizations, and sadly, the number of deaths. The numbers are staggering. Latinos make up 34% of cases nationwide, a much higher proportion than the group's 18% share of the population. Latinos aged 35 to 44 have a coronavirus mortality rate nearly eight times higher than white people in that age group. The inequity persists with Latinos aged 25 to 34 and those 45 to 54 who have a coronavirus mortality rate of at least five times higher than Caucasians, according to a new Harvard analysis of data. Here in the Bay Area, a UCSF study in the Mission District in early May was among the first to identify that the coronavirus was severely impacting the Latino community. In that study, concentrated in an area of San Francisco's Mission District, about 2% of the population showed the presence of coronavirus. Of those 2%, more than 90% were Latino. And while Latinos made up about 35% of patients there before the pandemic, San Francisco General says they now make up over 80% of COVID-19 cases at the hospital. Some of the reasons for this, Latinos continue to work in essential services, live in overcrowded housing conditions, lack access to healthcare, and have underlying health conditions. Today's program will look at these issues from a local, state, and national perspective. I'm honored to be joined by a powerful group of Latinas on the front lines of these issues. Okay, on to the introductions. First, Jacqueline Martinez-Garcel is the CEO of the Latino Community Foundation. Her incredible organization has taken a leading role in helping the Latino community throughout California address the COVID crisis. Through their Love Not Fear Fund, the Latino Community Foundation has raised millions of dollars for Latino-led organizations serving California's most vulnerable communities. And I will turn to Jacqueline shortly for more on this. Also joining us is Crisantema Gallardo, the director of 99 Roots, a youth organizing project that builds leadership pathways and safe growth spaces for young people in the small towns that surround Route 99 in the Central Valley. And finally, Miriam Yupanqui is executive director of Nuestra Casa. 
Her organization serves Latino families in East Palo Alto on a range of critical issues, including housing. Both 99 Roots and Nuestra Casa work closely with the Latino Community Foundation, or LCF, and I'd like to introduce Jacqueline to frame some of the big issues for us today, discuss what LCF is responding to or how they're responding to the pandemic, and the critical role of Latino-led nonprofits in building resilient communities at this very difficult time. Jacqueline? Thank you, Teresa. Thank you for already framing this conversation so well. Um, and it's an honor to be on this panel with Miriam and Christina, Christy, as we lovely know her, <laughs> someone that we just honor right now just for the incredible work that both of these women have been doing to support our families in the Central Valley and in East Palo Alto. You've already brought up some of the key data um, at the national level. And here in California, it's no different. Latinos make up 39% of the population yet we make up over 56% of COVID positive cases. Right now, we want to talk about this issue, but we also want to talk about the strength of our communities. Um, The video that some of you saw at the beginning at the top of the hour just was bringing to light the strength of our community that despite the fact that it feels like the walls are caving down, we continue to just get back up to support one another. And I don't want to forget that in the middle of this conversation So yes, Teresa, as our nation and um, our state is experiencing a collective trauma, universal vulnerability, the truth is that this virus is following the structure that we've set up because of the policies that have existed prior to this public health crisis. Um, For the first slide, I just wanted to quickly show that 55% of all cases, again, something that you've heard me just say right now, um, in California are Latino. What's sad about this number is that 74% of the people between the ages of 35 and 49 who have died from COVID are Latinos. So yes, the prevalence is higher, but what's more telling of the inequities that have persisted and existed prior to this public health crisis is the fact that people are dying at a faster rate. They're also dying younger. For the next slide, you'll see some of the reasons that you've already mentioned, Teresa, the four major reasons that for the next slide, 56% of all Latinos are uninsured. That actually was a problem we were facing in California prior to this public health crisis. One out of two Latinos uninsured undocumented elderly folks are still not eligible for insurance. And Latinos make up the majority of our essential workforce. 90% of our farm workers who have not stopped working because we all need food on our tables are still in the field. And some of their employers are not protecting them, are not providing them with the protection that they need in order to get out there and work. One out of five Latinos is able to work from home. That leaves four out of five Latinos needing to get out of their house in order to actually make money to bring it back home to feed their families. And what that data is not showing you right now is that those that are working outside their homes are still making minimum wage. And if one person gets ill in that household, the ability to pay rent or food gets Complete, it's devastating for a family. And so while the unemployment rates are high, 18% among the highest of all those that are unemployed right now, though what's not presented in this photo is those that are, are employed are making the least amount of money. And when one person loses that paycheck, it devastates the community. So for this conversation today, um, we're talking not just about the public health crisis, but the economic crisis that's hitting Latino families so hard. And thinking about this, not just in the immediate problem, but the long-term effect that this is going to have 
for our young people and the and the youth that are impacted right now by these unemployment rates. So Teresa, thank you for allowing me to open up this conversation. And most importantly, I want to remind our audience as they're listening today to keep in mind that there is so much strength in our community right now, that what we need to do is invest in the leaders that you'll hear from today in order for them to be able to continue not just serving on the front line and addressing the crisis, but planning for the years ahead to recover and reimagine an economy that will not leave our families behind any longer. Very sobering and powerful data. Thank you, Jacqueline. And you're right, this is about building resilience. But let me touch on what you just uh, were talking about. When it comes to economic impacts in California, COVID-related job losses have been particularly acute among people of color and undocumented workers. 20% of Latinos working in February had lost their jobs in April, and that rises to 24% for undocumented workers. And Latinas have been the most impacted group economically by the pandemic because uh, they are disproportionately employed in industries that have been hit especially hard, tourism, hospitality and leisure, restaurants, in-home health care, child care, and personal care services. So I'd like to uh, introduce the executive directors of two organizations working directly to respond to community need and ask them to discuss their organizations, who they serve, how long they've been in operation, how the pandemic has impacted their organizations and their communities, and how they've gotten through the past four months. Miriam, can you start us off and talk a little bit about Nuestra Casa? Great. Thank you so much, Teresa, for that introduction. And I would also like to thank the Latino Community Foundation, the Commonwealth Club, and Chan Zuckerberg Initiative for making this event possible. Our organization, Nuestra Casa, is based in East Palo Alto. And over the past 18 years, we have been serving the most vulnerable communities in the Mid-Peninsula. We exist to uplift Latino families, and we do this through an range of programs that incorporate community organizing, community leadership, and education. We also help influence policies at the local level through our civic engagement and advocacy efforts. It is an honor to lead an organization in the community where I grew up and represent individuals whose backgrounds are reflective of mine. When I think about COVID-19 and the impact that it's had on my organization and the community, I really think about the, the issues that were already confronting the community before the pandemic. And these have to do with um, economic sustainability, food security, and access to, to health care. At Nuestra Casa, when it comes to, to our work, we continue to stay focused on our mission. Our strategies have shifted. Now we have shifted those strategies to a remote base or a virtual base, but the mission is focused at the community level when it comes to housing. In addition to confronting the pandemic, we are still in a housing crisis and families are forced to live 10 to 15 individuals in one household. And when I think about this issue, I don't have to go too far to think about an example. My family's home, my parents' home in East Palo Alto is composed of nine individuals who are multi-generational and the ages range from 11 months to 88 years old. My grandfather is 88 years old. And all of the adults in my parents' house work in the service industry. And for this reason, they are more at risk for contracting the virus because they have to leave their home and the fact that they're not able to social distance at the way that they would like. 
when I think about economic sustainability at the community level, many of our community members work in the service industry and lost their jobs when the pandemic hit. And at the moment, um, the population that still concerns me is the undocumented and the unemployed population because they're not eligible for unemployment benefits. And um, we, we hear a lot of heartbreaking stories at the community level. There are local funds that are supporting um, undocumented individuals during this crisis, but you also hear desperation stories of individuals calling these local agencies a hundred times a day to be able to reach a person who's able to help them navigate the application process or, or check on the application process. However, I do have to say that at the moment, um, the, the San Mateo County is partnering with other local foundations to specifically support the undocumented population. Nuresa Casa will take a key role in identifying families in need. So thank you so much. Thank you, Miriam. Chrysanthema, please tell us a little bit about 99 Roots and what is the experience that you're uh, seeing in the Central Valley? Thank you, Teresa. Hi, everyone. Again, Crisantema Gallardo, Christy, 99 Roots Director. We're the Central Valley Program of Power California. 99 Roots is a youth-led movement that's growing across the Central Valley. Although our home, the Central Valley, is often generalized as farmland, oil fields, and a corridor of prisons, we know that youth and their families are living here, and we're also part of California. We should have a say and deserve to have an equal say in the decisions that impact our lives. Uh, black and brown youth are organizing and expanding our democracy to protect our rights to clean air, clean water, a free existence, and the right to live with dignity. Um, right now, we know that the central, another Central Valley is and must be possible, and this is why we exist as 99 Roots. Youth leaders are reconnecting with their cultures to bring about healing, they're mobilizing to influence and expand the electorate in the region. And we're building power to make change. We're building a set, we envision a Central Valley and are organizing to make it happen. A Central Valley that is thriving, where everyone is cared for and are free to be themselves. We're right now in this moment, really just seeing the magnitude of how the inequities of these systems have always caused black and brown communities to live without enough resources to have basic rights met. We understand that we need to be responsive to the immediate needs of young people of color and their families, and that this is also an opportunity for us to build for systemic reform and change that we have been organizing and fighting for. We're seeing many of our youth leaders who are not in school at the moment having to still risk their lives and be out in the fields themselves or be living in homes with parents that are working in the fields because they're essential workers. COVID-19 has just amplified the injustices that we've experienced in our region, having less resources to receive services in rural communities that don't have access to hospitals or transportation. We have also just seen the amount of in, the lack of investment in uh, financial support for this region. And so we know that in moments of crisis, people depend on our government 
more than ever before, but realistically, it's community that is taking care of one another. And we're seeing that in this region. So I'll be able to talk about later on just the efforts that we've done to ensure that we're taken care of. Thank you so much. What a great representation of our nonprofit leaders in the state. Jacqueline, is this what you're hearing more broadly outside of these two organizations? Yeah, it's exactly what uh, Christy and Miriam pointed to. Um, at Christy's last point is so important is that the nonprofits that have been anchor institutions in their communities, despite the underinvestment, continue to be the go-to place for families. Um, they're trusted sources of information. They're trusted sources to help families navigate even when the governor made available some funds for undocumented workers, it was these organizations that helped families even begin to understand how to apply for it and get those funds. But one of the things that I want to come back to that both Christi, Christy and Miriam pointed to is the fact that, again, we're dealing with inequities that were there prior to the pandemic. I'm going to keep repeating that again, because as we think about what we're learning right now, what is being exposed right now, what's being amplified right now, our responsibility as a state, both the public public and the private and the community sector is to address those underlying problems because this won't be the last public health crisis that we face. It won't be the last climate-induced um, crisis that we face. And so if we continue to underinvest in communities like Merced and Fresno and Bakersfield, like East Palo Alto, in a state that boasts to be the fifth largest economy in the world, we will continue to see people die at rates that are unexplainable and unexcusable. And we need to hold ourselves accountable, our public and private sector to do something about this. So yes, your question, Teresa, in Salinas, the, the LA Times uh, shined the light in the life of our farm workers that are picking our strawberries, the ones that we're enjoying during this season right now, families that live about 11 people in one apartment because it's $1,000 or more to pay for rent. And if you're making less than that, how can you afford to live in a place on your own with your own family? So when we think about the crowding of spaces, it's disheartening to hear people put blame on the families when in fact we live right now in a, in a state and in a country where the minimum wage doesn't even begin to cover living expenses, where making a minimum wage doesn't even allow you to pay a rent, let alone, uh, you know, when we tell people like shelter in place, like how are we to assume they have a safe place to shelter in place when we were really dealing with the affordable housing problem at the, at the rate and the urgency that we needed to prior to this problem? Absolutely. And that really leads me to a, a really snapshot of Silicon Valley. We all know that many low-income people in Silicon Valley were already working two to three jobs. And with the very sudden shutdown, people were immediately affected. On March 23rd, the Santa Clara County, County Homelessness Prevention System announced the launch of a COVID-19 financial assistance program as part of Silicon Valley Strong a series of funds hosted by the Silicon Valley Community Foundation. Thanks to public-private partnership between a coalition of nonprofits like the ones these ladies represent, tech companies, the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, Mayor Licardo and the City of San Jose, and Supervisor Chavez and the County of Santa Clara, the fund was launched with $10 million to provide people with direct financial assistance. But in three days, that money was depleted, distributed to over 4,000 low-income households. And this represents just a fraction of the need. In fact, the interest list for that fund has grown to 14,000 households. And the reality is, as you said, Jacqueline, low-income households that were severely rent burdened before the pandemic hit 
are now struggling to survive. And the suffering is even worse for those who are not eligible to receive unemployment benefits and other forms of assistance. And we mentioned the Disaster Relief Assistance Fund created by Governor Newsom. It is the first state in the nation, we are the first state in the nation, to provide assistance to undocumented workers who make up 10% of California's labor force. The public-private fund was established with $75 million from the state and is raising $50 million from foundations and individuals. And the fund is accepting donations from the general public. If someone is interested in contributing, they can go to immigrantfundca.org. So Miriam, what are the most critical needs you're seeing looking forward? When I think about the months to come and maybe possibly years, I continue to go back to the challenges that were confronting our communities before the pandemic, as Jacqueline mentioned, economic sustainability, food security, access to stable housing. And I really think about what Nuestra Casa is doing to mitigate some of these challenges. When it comes to the food security piece, Nuestra Casa is running a successful food distribution program, and we have seen that the pandemic has tripled. The demand for this program has tripled since the pandemic happened. But we are doing much more than distributing fresh food items to individuals. We are building a community. We are building a community of um, individuals who trust us, and we're using this to disseminate key information pertaining to the census, immigrant benefits, and soon voter engagement. In the housing space, Nuestra Casa will soon work in an anti-displacement project in partnership with the city of East Palo Alto to protect tenants and ensure that residents continue to call East Palo Alto at home. And when I think about the economic sustainability piece, I really am eager to support our promotoras who are community outreach workers in the front lines. And we're really interested in creating an and a, a sustainability path for them. And for this reason, we are launching a women's business incubator program. And at the moment, we need $50,000 to jumpstart the planning for this program. So I'm very excited for the future and the coming opportunities for our community members. Fantastic. Thank you, Miriam. Grisantema, what are the youth that you're working with saying about themselves, about their futures and, and their families? You know, again, I want to reiterate what my compañeras have shared, COVID-19 is amplifying the racial and economic injustices that have disproportionately impacted young people of color and their families. These young people that I work with, they are the essential workers that are restocking our shelves at local grocery stores, preparing everyone's food um, at restaurants, in fast food drive throughs and they're picking the food in the fields. There are young people that are saying we are not getting emergency pay. We are not getting protective uh, equipment at work. What do we do to organize and unite to shift this injustice that we've been experiencing? We definitely know that housing is going to be at the forefront. Many of our families are already impacted by the lack of affordable housing in rural communities. And in this moment, they're having to make tough decisions on whether to quit their jobs or risk their lives. And many of them are having to be at the front lines and work just to pay bills. So young people are being fearless and bold. I, I want to name that 
part of the needs that are coming up or the demands that young people are standing for are, yes, shifted because of of COVID-19 and also just really influenced by the movement for Black lives. We're seeing youth at the forefront saying enough is enough. We're tired of just surviving. We are dreaming and know that we are worthy of communities where housing is is going to be viewed as a right for everyone. Youth are saying um, we should become house owners. How do we um, undertake collective home ownership and talk about the redistribution of wealth and ensure that our government is also defunding law enforcement and police and investing that into our um, making affordable housing and passing zoning ordinances that are actually going to benefit farm workers and undocumented folks? How do we also ensure that our eight counties across this region pass local programs to cover undocumented adults um, that for a long time have always been without health coverage? And let's make sure we have universal income. Why don't we have our families getting money on a monthly basis to ensure that we have enough money to pay for food, for housing, and internet and Wi-Fi? Talking about schools doing all virtual learning in this region, our students are hurting. Wi-Fi is not as accessible as it should be. Many of our families are Latino families. This was my experience growing up. I didn't own a computer My parents did not understand how to use technology. And many of the youth are saying that that's becoming um, a big issue or is a big issue for them. So ensuring that education meets the needs, our schools need to be funded at the rate that that is going to ensure that all English learners, foster youth and low income students of color are going to have their um, needs met. We, We know that in the immediate um, and in, in the next six months, there's also a huge need to center the need, the mental and spiritual health needs of young people. Schools were the, their only safe space for many of them to be their full authentic selves, in particular our queer and trans young people who are now at home dealing with anxiety or depression um, and not having, not feeling safe or free to be themselves are also in need of that. So overall, I know that all community groups and youth groups are invested in advocating and ensuring that our local government funds housing, health, and education. Absolutely core pillars to a resilient community and absolutely needed. And if the stakes weren't high enough uh, with all of this that you're talking about, of course, this is also the year of the census and a presidential election. Can I ask you each to talk about that? Jacqueline, why don't we start with you? Sure. Uh, th- this is the year where we anticipated Latinos also uh, determining the outcomes of those two. And so to have to deal with the fact that so many families are hurting right now and still needing to focus and center these conversations around what's at stake is, is it's the tension that we're all kind of fighting with right now. Um, but the Latino Community Foundation has continued to invest in organizations like 99 Roots and Nuestra Casa to focus on the census at this moment in time. We need more of that funding for these organizations to hire more youth, to make the phone calls, to do the texting, to 
do the caravan organizing that needs to happen so that we can get our response rate even higher than what it is right now. Because when we look at where we're at, 56% response rate at this stage of the census, but when you look at communities that are predominantly Latino, we're far behind that. And it's because our attention is being drawn in so many different directions. So our nonprofits need the resources to be able to bring on the staff that they need to keep attention and focus on the census. Too much money will be lost if we don't focus in on it. And the truth is, it's not that, let's talk about the presidential election. Yes, there'll be that, but there also, there are going to be ballot measures in California that are going to have a tremendous impact on the future of Latino youth, including schools and communities first which is a ballot measure that will reverse what Prop 13 has done for so long in California by taking out resources that were desperately needed in our school system and bringing them back. More than $12 billion annually will be reinvested by new revenue if this ballot measure passes. And when we look at who's in our public school system, it's predominantly Black and Latino youth. One out of two school-aged children is Latino right now. And Schools and Communities First is an opportunity for Californians to actually make a, a racist policy, Prop 13, back in 48 years ago, and turn it into an anti-racist policy where we can actually get investments back into our school system and our communities, in our infrastructure, in our healthcare, because it's one thing to make insurance available, but if our communities are also don't have the health centers that they need and the community health providers that they need, then we're still dealing with the same issues. Um, and so I, I just, yes, the investments are critical right now in order for our community partners to continue focusing on this while they're also, it's a defense offense game, right? Like defend and defending and making sure families have food on their table, money in their pockets to actually make it through this crisis. At the same time, continuing the organizing that Christy and Miriam are talking about with our young people. And by the way, when our young people are organizing and advocating, there is a sense of hope driving this. And Chrissy just touched on something that we're not talking about enough, which is the mental health toll that this is taking on our families. So watching the news for all of us right now, I mean, I sit in my living room and, and I just can't even stop crying. I've stopped watching it so close to going to sleep because I go to sleep with my heart broken. Now, imagine the families that are facing having to get out of their home and, and work and then come back home and deal with the weight of the moment. When you have young people who are organizing for a better future, that just gives a glimmer, a glimmer of hope for people to fight for what the future can look like. And that's the moment that we are living in right now is that we can reimagine a new economy. We can think about what Chrissy just mentioned, our young people actually owning their homes. There is an opportunity for us to organize around even our nonprofits owning their land where they work from so that when gentrification happens, they're not pushed out of the communities that they serve. There are things that we can do right now when we organize, when we advocate, when we get the private sector and donors to invest in these solutions and make sure that the people who are driving the solutions are the Christie's and the Marion of our community. You know, and this, I think, I love the way we're, we're moving from response and recovery to resilience, because really it's about understanding the underlying foundational components of our society that are not afforded to everyone. I wanted to highlight that there's a recent legislation by Senator Lena Gonzalez, SB 1130, called Broadband for California, which would help close the digital divide. It has passed the Senate I'm not sure if it's made it to the governor's uh, desk yet, but these are the kinds of things that 
I think maybe we take for granted and we don't realize that in this era of kids needing to continue their schooling from home, this is a tremendous barrier to our communities being part of uh, the digital economy going forward. One point, yes, just, just before you move on from that point on the digital divide, when we think about the jobs that are going to be made available past this, a lot of jobs are going to be automated. Some sectors are going to disappear. That's right. Retail, hospitality, they're not going to look the same. And if we don't figure out a way to give people the basic tools that Chrissy was talking about, Wi-Fi, and providing right. them with uh, the hardware that they need in order to be trained for those jobs, my goodness, like California is going to look... A, a lot different with a lot of people living and left behind in poverty for far too long. Agreed. Uh, Miriam or Crisantema, uh, either of you want to weigh in here? Yeah. So at Nuestra Casa, we have shifted our strategies to connect with the heart to count communities. Uh, we are focused specifically in the heart to count communities of East Palo Alto, Bell Haven, and North Fair Oaks for our census outreach. And, and at one point, we were thinking that we were going to work in the traditional canvassing model. However, now we're doing a lot of that outreach uh, digitally through Facebook Live events and raffles. And as you saw earlier in, um, in our video, through caravans in our community to continue to spread awareness and pass the word, we're using the food distribution program as a source for us to continue to connect with community members and help them with the technical challenges in completing the census form. So very excited to continue this work. And as we continue to the presidential election, Mr. Casa will also be helping community members with voter registration and um, disseminating information. Thank you. Luisantema? I echo just the importance of making sure that we get our families to complete the census, and then also come out and vote. In 99 Roots, we do year-round grassroots organizing and electoral organizing. So in the 2018 primaries, we were able to text thousands of voters. It was more than 10,000 um, young voters of color that we reached out via text. And so in this moment, we too had plans to go out in our neighborhoods and build one-on-one -on -one relationships to hear from folks. And we're still do doing that, but now it's about experimenting and doing it digitally. In the primaries, we called voters, uh, young people called other young voters, many first-time voters, first-generation voters, um, to talk to them about the importance of the census and really educate them. Because many of us, I know growing up, I had no idea what the census was. My parents, being undocumented farm workers, were fearful of even completing that. And our communities have, they have a reason to have mistrust of this government. So it becomes even more critical for our organizations and our youth leaders to be that resource, to be educated on um, why it's important for us to come out and vote or complete the census form, because then they can, one, reach out to their own families and let them know about the process. And two, they can phone bank and call other young voters and let them know like peer to peer, hey, I this is what the census is and you should fill it out. So we, you know, in, I mentioned earlier that in the primaries, we did phone banking to talk and educate young voters about the census. Right now, we're actually running a summer program where we're calling young youth leaders are out of their houses 
um, using technology, placing calls to young voters, to those same young voters we talked to earlier this year to remind them about the census and to also talk to them about the very important ballot measures that are going to be coming up um, in November, the importance of funding our schools and communities fully, um, the importance of also engaging in local action. And that's something that we've seen. Social media is critical. How do we build content and resources for young people to know where they can access immediate resources from financial help? This is how you can email your school board and let them know that you want them to fund mental health services, right? And so in 99 Roots, we're invested in, in continuing to do that, to give young people, um, educate young people online through phone banking, through texting, and to also bring in new movement leaders. And this is where our Each One Teach One Summer Academies um, are really playing that role. We through Zoom, through virtual platforms, are still politicizing young people and having them hold conversations about what is the strategy for us to not just react, but also continue to build towards our liberation, towards a, a community where schools are fully funded and are the heart of community because we win wellness centers, where undocumented adults can show up to our school and get that service that they need to ensure that they're healthy. Incredible, incredible work. We did have a question that was submitted about whether your organizations are working with the private sector, with uh, private companies on these issues. And I wanted to touch on, again, the Silicon Valley Recovery Roundtable that I serve on. It's a 58-person cross-sector organization. Many tech companies are represented on that committee. And The four areas that we're focusing on are being able to reopen business safely, thinking about inclusive prosperity. How do we make sure those uh, most vulnerable are included back in recovery? How do you support small business? And of course, a lot of um, small businesses owned by communities, uh, members of color. And then what are the transformational components to a new normal, to a new economy that is more inclusive? And I have been so impressed by the commitment of every member of that task force, private sector, public sector, nonprofit, toward those issues and really an inclusive approach. I think people are really recognizing the depth of inequity in our region uh, and in our state. I'd like to hear what you're experiencing and if you are working with companies. And Jacqueline, let's start with you. So there are some of the micro examples that I want to give right now. So when this started, the shelter in place mandate happened, Dropbox was a company that we had good relationships with. And knowing that some of our nonprofits uh, didn't have enough laptops to send their staff home to continue working from home was like the number one priority that we had to figure out how to address because our nonprofits are worrying about census, because they're the go-to place for information and for resource, financial resources, we needed to make sure that some of our nonprofits who didn't have those hardware had it. So Dropbox sent us over 40 laptops that we were able to ship out in less than five days to nonprofits in the Inland Empire and Central Valley. That was critical just to keep them working and moving forward. But we need deeper partnerships. We need for our tech companies, for example, to also think about the platforms that they can make available for our young people to do the outreach that Christy is referring to. How do we make those resources 
available? Um, how do we make them also, how do we bring in young people to be trained on the back end to also be employed by those companies? Um, there are sectors that are disappearing, but then there are sectors who are surging in employment because the need is up. So what are these companies doing in order to make those job opportunities accessible to our youth? Because before this pandemic, less than 3% of Latinos are employed in the tech sector. So we need them to really think about the future of hiring and how are we letting go of some of the barriers and roadblocks that we've placed in the way that doesn't account for the lived experience that our young people bring to the table when they are employed, um, when they can use their experiences of living in Fresno to the applications of, of technology in a real way. So I'm, I'm imploring our viewers right now to think about that because if, if the retail sector and hospitality and service industries are the ones that are being devastated right now by unemployment rates, and that's where the majority of Latinos are employed, how are we going to quickly make sure that Latinos are employed in the industries where the jobs are surging and soaring? That's one. Number two, when I think about our agricultural companies, why aren't we thinking about paying our farm workers with stocks or with opportunities to even own land. What is, there's nothing wrong with thinking about ways where it's not just about minimum wage or the basics, but going beyond charity, going beyond the philanthropic work that they do with one arm and thinking about how do we reimburse and pay our workers in a way that's giving them an opportunity to build wealth, to build wealth. I'm tired of building the floor of just minimum wage requirements. How about ways where we can get farm workers to own land, to own their places, to begin to build generational wealth? It's time for us to think about these solutions because the problems that we are facing right now have been made worse because what was working before was not working for our families and we have to reimagine a new future. Miriam, are you working with uh, companies in East Palo Alto to invest in the community? When I when I really think about the the future ahead, I really feel that it's important to work across with the corporate, the government, and the nonprofit sectors to create um, the new economy we want. Um, at the moment, you know, the fact that we are in Silicon Valley, we are in a position of power. But unfortunately, those relationships with the tech sector have been limited, not because we don't want to, but because those opportunities have not become available to the to Nuestra Casa. I do have to say that at the local level, Facebook um, is supporting our census efforts, and that's very exciting. And I hope that once we launch our Women's Business Incubator Program, it will open more opportunities for our organizations to build opportunities for community members and continue to build those much-needed partnerships. This is a great question. You know, I, I, I know that there's individuals within the business community that are, have really stepped up in this moment and as individuals have been funding our Central Valley Mutual Aid efforts um, to help you know, our low-income, undocumented immigrant community uh, with financial resources. Um, something that does come up is the, the need for small business folks or those individuals that are helping to organize their peers, to talk to them about the importance of also showing up to uh, governance uh, meetings when city council meets and community is talking about rent freeze. Rent freeze includes our 
small business owners who are struggling to pay rent. Um, and so I would love to see that conversation happen in this region. Um, agribusiness, ag, big ag. Um, I just want to reiterate what Jacqueline so beautifully said. We need our farm workers to own land, to work the land that they own, to be able to um, have some wealth. And I, I want to, to ask if anyone knows any ag business that is a model to or even open to engaging with community to discuss what land ownership would look like or what going beyond minimum wage for our farm workers would be, um, connect us. We, we dream of a world where big ag is no longer getting breaks from even having to pay for water, um, but instead is able to say, let's give that free water, drinking water to young people and their families in the Central Valley who in this moment are struggling to even have access to mm -hmm. safe water. No, you mentioned small businesses. One part of that, I want to just lift that up in this conversation right now, because it is an opportunity for Californians to take advantage of the fact that Latinas are eight times more likely to open up their business. And back in the 2008 recession, what helped California recover was the fact that Latinas were still continuing to open up their business. They were critical to the recovery of the 2008 recession. And so if we as Californians really want to fast forward this economic downturn that we're experiencing that may be getting worse in the next couple of months, then we need to invest in Latina and Latino entrepreneurs. And when I use that word, I use it broadly to also talk about our street vendors in LA. Inclusive Action in LA is an organization that is actually investing capital for these street vendors to think about their business models, a way to not just make immediate money, but to build, again, a business, to build their wealth. And we need to be creative about the creativity and ingenuity that comes from being an immigrant in this country, because people want to produce a, uh, a, a they a dignified way of making a living, make, creating a paycheck is something that immigrants all dream of, right? And so, whether it's making tamales to sell sell them in order to feed my family, that's an entrepreneur. Why don't we invest in them the way we the 1987 movie Baby Baby Boomers, where the woman was making applesauce in her house? I keep using that experience. Because as an American dream, it's like we want to invest in the ingenuity of our people, where immigrants are among the most in, in, creative and, and thoughtful. And you keep using the word resilient, which is important. We know how to get back up on our feet. Resilience is something that I wish wouldn't be tested so much in our communities, but it is. We know how to get back up. So let's invest in that because when we invest in that, we invest in the recovery of a California that's really prosperous and inclusive. That's absolutely right. Um, I do want to highlight and lift up two CEOs who I think have been really outspoken in support of um, closing the gap and, and addressing disparities. Chuck Robbins is the CEO of Cisco. He has been phenomenal. You, you must follow him on Twitter. He has a, a big heart. He recognizes the uh, contribution of tech to homelessness and is taking ownership and is challenging his CEO peers to speak out about Black Lives Matter. And it's been really heartening. Uh, the other is Mark Benioff from Salesforce, who also has really uh, taken it uh, as a personal mission to address homelessness in the Bay Area. And so I think they are serving as role models for other CEOs to recognize we are one region 
one community, one state, and it, it, we are part of an ecosystem. And if we have uh, people, as you so eloquently say, Jacqueline, who are uh, just looked at as uh, part of the service economy and not building community wealth and community assets, uh, personal assets, then this is just going to be one in a many long line, including climate change and, and uh, you know, water quality ha- was a tremendous issue during the drought and still has not been resolved for several uh, small communities in the Central Valley. These are continuing issues of basic uh, foundational services and human rights that uh, we want to make sure everyone in California is afforded. Any final thoughts or comments before we close? Miriam? I would like to say thank you so much for this opportunity. I really want to say that as we continue to move forward, I feel that we really have this unique opportunity to work across all sectors to build a more equitable Silicon Valley. Thank you. Crisantema? Yeah, I, I want to lift up the importance of continuing to invest and um, donate to groups like ours that are not just focused on um, meeting the immediate needs, but most importantly, centering the long-term strategies that Black and Brown communities have been fighting towards. Um, Invest in organizing groups, um, ensure that young people are at the forefront of the new economy, and that any recovery plan includes Black and brown youth and immigrants and refugees. Thank you. Jacqueline. It's been beautifully said by both Christy and Miriam right now. We have such an incredible opportunity to reimagine a new future. As much pain as we're all experiencing right now and the weight of this moment sometimes feels like it's crushing us. We have an opportunity to get back on our feet and rebuild and reimagine a new future with Black and Latino youth leading that future, whether it's in the public and the private sector. Um, I encourage all of our audiences to think about the dollars that we're investing. Are we investing them in Latino-led organizations? You've met Christy and you met Miriam. There are 300-plus Latino-led organizations in the state of California. They get less than 1.1% of all philanthropic dollars, and yet the solutions and the creativity that they're driving is exciting. Exactly what we need for this moment in time. And the same is for our small businesses and our entrepreneurs. They are the ones who are least getting invested. And yet, when we think about the ingenuity that we need right now to recover from this moment, it comes from the Latino community. It comes from the Black community. It comes from the Asian community. Those who have made the backbone of our of our economy, yet have been underinvested in such a significant way. And we can change that now. Um, because like you said, Teresa, and I repeat at the beginning, it, this won't be the last public health crisis that we face. And either we come out out of this in a way that we will avoid the pain that we're seeing right now in the future, or we'll repeat our history all over again. Hmm. Thank you so much, ladies. Uh, thank you for everything you're doing every day. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today's program. I want to thank the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative again for its support of today's program and the Latino Community Foundation for its help, not only with today's program, but as a leading voice in the state for the value of our Latino community and investing in its resilience. The club will soon be posting this video on its website, so please share it widely so people understand these issues. I'm Teresa Alvarado, and this virtual Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. 
You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.